Good morning. You know, it's not the Australians we need to watch, Neil. It's the South Africans. I, I just sense a, an ungodly spirit of smugness. Um, may it be corrected quickly. Uh, could you please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5? That would be really helpful. I don't really think that about South Africans, by the way. Um, Matthew chapter 5, and if you have a bookmark um, or using the stringy bit in your Bible, um, stick it in there because we're basically going to be on this page pretty much until Christmas because, as Neil said, we're starting a series on this, these, these Beatitudes which come right at the start of the most famous sermon ever preached, which is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, um, which is called the Sermon on the Mount because he delivered it on the side of a mountain. Uh, as it says in verses 1 and 2, it says, When he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. So that's how we start this little passage, the Sermon on the Mount. Well, what is a beatitude, I guess, is the first question. A beatitude, the Latin word beatus means um, blessed. And so a beatitude is a declaration of blessing, a declaration of blessedness. As you can see from the fact that each one of these beatitudes starts with the words blessed are, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. So what I'd like to do, just to kick off, and actually it'd be great if we did this every week, is to read these together. It's a very short passage of scripture, but I'd like us to read these together because there's something about reading scripture out loud all together, declaring scripture, which is, it's good. It is powerful, and it actually helps it to get it into us as well. Um, and so I'd like us to read together between, from verses 3 to 10. There is also verse 11 and 12, let me just say this, which uh, we will be addressing in this, at the end of the series. But verse 11 and 12 are kind of an elaboration of verse 10, the last beatitude. So I just want us to focus in on those eight beatitudes in verses 3 to 10. So I think it's going to come up on the screen, um, and hopefully a lot of you have your Bibles open. Is it going to come up on the screen? <laughs> yes, it is. Brilliant. Okay, so I'd love us to read this all together, if possible. Nice and loud. Don't be shy. Um, so from verse 3, I'll count us in. One, two, three. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Thank you. And then Jesus goes on to elaborate a little bit more on that last beatitude about the joyous subject of persecution. Um, who knows what Google Earth is? Who, who's used Google Earth? I imagine a lot of people know what Google Earth is. For those who don't, Google Earth is a tool that you have on your computer whereby you can kind of zoom in to any point on the planet and see photographically an, an area of the planet, any area of the planet. So you can start with a view of the whole planet you can kind of rotate the planet around, and then you could zoom in if you wanted to, right in, right in, right in, to see an aerial photograph of your own house. And you can do that for any point on the planet. It's aerial photographs because they use satellite photographs taken from, from satellites. Now, why do I talk about Google Earth? Well, because over the next few weeks of this series, we're going to be zoomed right in, as it were. Zoomed right in, looking in some detail at each of these Beatitudes. So next week, we're going to address the first two. Blessed are the poor in spirit who mourn. 
But then each week after that, it's going to be one beatitude per week. So we're going to be looking in some detail. It's a little bit like being zoomed right in on an individual house in Google Earth, which has the advantage of being able to look in some detail, but it also has the disadvantage of potentially missing a lot of very important context. Because if you zoom out a bit, you realize that this house you're looking at is actually part of a street. And then if you zoom out again, you realize that the street is part of a town. And if you zoom out again, you realize the town is part of a nation, and zoom out again, and this nation is actually part of a a planet. There's a lot of important context that you can miss from being zoomed uh, zoomed right in. And hopefully what will become clear as I go on today, and also as we go through this series, is that the intention on preaching through these Beatitudes in this way, by focusing in on them like this, the intention is not to preach, for example, preach on being poor in spirit so that people then think, well, now I'm going to go away and be poor in spirit this week, as if that is the only thing. Or preach on being meek so people go away and think, I'm going to be meek this week, as if that is the only thing. We want to preach on each one of these. We want to focus in on the individual houses in order to bring a greater understanding of what each one means. But the point is that you have to take each one as part of the whole. You have to take each one in the context of the whole set of Beatitudes. And I'll explain a little bit more about that later. And so my intention today in introducing this series and introducing the Beatitudes is to kind of take you on a Google Earth tour of this, starting at the planetary view, zoomed right out, and then zooming in, and then zooming in again, and getting in closer and getting in closer until we reach the street view of the Beatitudes themselves in preparation for zooming in again to look at the individual houses, to look at those individual Beatitudes throughout the series. Okay, So let's start by zooming right out, right out to the planetary view, the big picture. Because these words of Jesus that we have here are hugely, hugely significant in the whole sweep of human history and and in, in how God relates to his creation, to mankind, to us. The last word, you know, the last word of the Old Testament, and Old Testament means Old Covenant, the old law-based agreement between God and his people that governed how they were to relate to each other um, and, and, and how that all worked, how that relationship worked. The last word of the Old Testament in Malachi 4.6 is curse. Curse. I will strike your land with a curse. It is no accident that just a few pages on, the first words that come out of Jesus' mouth in this sermon is blessed. Blessed. And not only once, he repeats it nine times in quick succession. He wants to make a point. This is the announcement of a new covenant that we have here. This is incredibly significant. The announcement of a new covenant that has cosmic and eternal consequences. This is a new way of how God and his people will relate to each other, of how God intends to rescue and redeem this sin-corrupted world and people. In the book of Deuteronomy, just take you on a very quick tour of the Bible here, in the book of Deuteronomy, which is near the beginning of the Old Testament, um, we... We read about God's people, the Israelites, who came out of Egypt. They were in slavery. They came out of Egypt. They came through the waters of the Red Sea. They came through the wilderness, 40 years in the wilderness, and they get to the border of the promised land, and there God makes a covenant with them. And part of that covenant is that he lists the blessings that will come upon them if they are obedient, and he also lists the curses that will come upon them if they are disobedient. But now Matthew shows us Jesus And he shows us a Jesus who has come out of Egypt in chapter 2. He's come through the waters of baptism. 
And he spent 40 days in the wilderness in chapters 3 and 4. And here he is now on the border of the promised land, as it were, of the coming kingdom of God. And here now is his new covenant. This is how it's going to be from now on. This is, this is completely new. And this is the covenant that will reach its fulfillment. It will reach its consummation when Jesus returns again. And we read about this in Revelation 22. Let me just look at a bit of this. Revelation 22 talks about this river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. Where have we heard about the tree of life before? Tree of life is there at the end. It's the same tree that's there at the beginning. The tree of life. I love how this comes full circle. It kind of like closes this circle. And it's this tree bearing its fruit, healing the nations. And then it says this in verse 3. No longer will there be any curse. No longer will there be any curse. From Deuteronomy to Matthew to Revelation, this thread runs through of how God relates to his people, and actually it's his intention to bless them. You know, sometimes people like to point out apparent contradictions in the Bible, and I say apparent because I don't actually believe they are. But it's a little bit like, when people do that, it's a little bit like looking at this amazing, beautiful masterpiece and pointing out a few specks of dust. Because what is, for me is overwhelmingly striking about, about this, about this book, about this Bible, the scriptures we have, is the coherence of it, the coherence of this book, that this all hangs together. Because you know, this isn't one book, it's actually 66 books, written, inspired by God, but written by several different human authors over a period of about 1,500 years. And how this all hangs together, and how this all points to Jesus, is stunning. To point out, contradictions is like specks of dust on a masterpiece. This is a masterpiece. This is stunning. This is beautiful. This is majestic, the word of God. And these beatitudes that we're looking at have a highly significant place in this cosmic and eternal story that is told through these pages. It has a central place in in this story, in the covenantal history of the world. No more curse. No more curse, but only blessing through Christ. I think that is spectacular. I mean, I don't know if this sort of stuff floats your boat, but it does mine. I just just think this is amazing. And um, when you see these threads running through the whole of history and the whole of Scripture. So that's the planetary view. That's the big picture of the Beatitudes. So let's zoom in a bit now, if you like, from the planet view to a nation view, by considering the context of Jesus' ministry in that region, the whole of his ministry in that region. If you've got your Bible open, just have a look at Matthew 4.23. Matthew 4.23 says this. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So this is a summary of Jesus' ministry that Matthew's giving us here. This is, this is what Jesus did. This is what he came to do, and it's what he did. It's a summary of his ministry. Now have a look at Matthew 9.35. Matthew 9.35 says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. It's almost exactly the same phrase. Now, that, things like that don't happen by accident in the Bible. That's not accidental on Matthew's part. He hasn't just sort of copied and pasted from, from somewhere else. He does that on purpose. There's a literary device called an inclusio, which is there to highlight something. It's like you've got these two bookends. You've got these two repeated phrases. 
Um, and it should cause us, when we see that, to look in between. What's in between? If you like, you've got these two pieces of bread. When we see that, we, it should cause us to look in between the pieces of bread at the sandwich filling. What is in there? And well, what do we see in there? Well, we see chapters 5 to 7 are the Sermon on the Mount, which is the teaching and preaching part of his ministry. Chapters 8 to 9, you have a series of stories about Jesus doing miracles and healing people. It's an elaboration of this summary which Matthew has given. But the thing is, Matthew has arranged it like this deliberately. This is not an accident. He's arranged the material deliberately because he wants to emphasize something to the reader about Jesus. And what he wants to emphasize is that Jesus' ministry was one of both word and power. Word and power. And that one, each one complements and reinforces the other. Word and power. Word and spirit. Because why do I make this point? How is this relevant? Well, it's relevant because sometimes you get people who like to, Christians who like to prefer one over the other. So, for example, I really like the teaching of Jesus. Yeah, give me, give me good, solid teaching anytime. I love the teaching of Jesus. It's solid, no-nonsense, challenge. If everyone just lived like that, you know, follow the rules, we'll be all right. But I don't really like this healing, airy-fairy sort of stuff, prophecy and charismatic, supernatural Mumbo jumbo, no, don't give me that. The problem with there are and, and there are many people like that. The problem with that is that word without power leads to moralism and legalism, and they're ugly things. They're really not good things at all. And as we'll see, this teaching we have in the Beatitudes, it's impossible without the power. It's absolutely impossible without power. On the other extreme, though, you have people sometimes who love the how can I put the who, who love the warm fuzzy stuff, the you know the healing meetings and 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 spiritual experience and that's what it's all about. But don't tell me I can't get divorced. Don't you dare tell me I have a problem with anger or I have a problem with lust. Don't you dare challenge my lifestyle with your legalistic teachings, Jesus. It's effectively what they say. Problem with that. Problem when you have spirit emphasis on just spirit and power without word is it just leads to flakiness. You just get flaky Christians who are just as self-absorbed as the next man and, and their lifestyles really don't represent anything of Jesus at all. Now, I hope that no one here is in either of those camps because Matthew doesn't leave us the option. He simply doesn't leave us that option. The Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount is the same Jesus who did all the miracles. This is one Jesus. This is one Savior, the one who teaches and challenges and the one who is supernatural. He is supernatural, and he is powerful. So you can't separate the two things out. They, they have to come together. And so while in this series, we're obviously focusing in on the teaching of Jesus, it is in, and it must be in, the essential context of his power, and that he is supernatural. You can't separate the two things out and just tell people, right, now go away and live this. It just doesn't work like that. Okay, so that's the context of the Beatitudes in Jesus' ministry, word and power, and you need both. Let's zoom in again to, if you like, to a town-wide context by looking at the immediate context for these Beatitudes, which is the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 to 7. Um, it's, been, it's been really interesting over the last um, few days and few weeks, really, and, and this is, I don't, my intention here is not to make any sort of political comment or opinions, okay, so... watching Jeremy Corbyn, who's the the new, I'm sure everyone knows who he is, the new leader of the Labour Party, watching him trying to establish and lay out his manifesto, his his blueprint, if you like, for for what he 
he thinks the Labour Party should represent and what a country governed by his Labour Party would look like. He's trying to lay out his manifesto. I think it's a pretty tough job for him because you have some of his senior team who very publicly disagree with him on certain issues. And this week it's been particularly about the Trident thing, the British nuclear weapon system. And, and so he's got members of his team disagreeing with him as the leader and, and actually, some of the public comments, I think, have been pretty undermining of Jeremy Corbyn as the leader. And in, in the political party, there's this whole process of, uh, of policy development and review. So they, we're reviewing this. So he said one thing, they're saying this thing, we're reviewing this. We're going through a consultation, a review, all of that sort of thing. And we'll let you know our policy in, in due course. Well, in contrast, here we have Jesus. And he's, if you like, laying out his manifesto in the Sermon on the Mount of what kingdom living looks like. Life in the kingdom of God. By the way, kingdom of God is not a physical territory, not a a geographical territory. The kingdom of God, if you like, means the kingship of God. And it's where the kingdom of God is present wherever anyone comes under the rule and reign of God and has access to that through Jesus. That's the kingdom of God. That's what we mean by that. And Jesus is saying, this is what living in the kingdom looks like. This is kingdom living. And there are no consultations or reviews going on here. Jesus doesn't consult with his senior team here. He's very, very clear that this is what it is to be in the kingdom. This is what it looks like. This is how we should live as saved people, as Christians. Because he is primarily addressing his disciples. That's made clear at the start of chapter 5. He's primarily addressing his disciples. He's saying, as my disciples, this is how you should live. As, followers, as my followers, this is what your life should look like. He's not primarily telling people who are not his followers how you should live. Because actually, outside of Jesus Christ, it's not possible anyway. You can't live like this. It's simply not possible. But, let me just make this point. Jesus does clearly intend for the crowds, who are not his disciples, to hear this teaching. Because it says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in the end of chapter 7, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. He clearly intends for all these people to hear him. He's addressing his disciples, but actually he knows there are others listening in. I think that has an application for us as well. And it's that if if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, you wouldn't consider yourself to be in the kingdom of God, it is still intended that you hear this. It's still intended that you hear this and that you respond to the one who delivers, not me, to Jesus to the one who delivers this teaching as he describes the kind of life that all are called to. And actually, that I think we all have a deep longing for. So what does he say then? Because his manifesto is pretty wide-ranging. So let me briefly outline what Jesus actually talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about our relationship to the world in being salt and light, having a positive effect in the world. He talks about also our relationship to individuals. You know, So for example, when he talks about anger and equates it to murder. He's talking about how we relate to individuals. He talks about sexual integrity with his words about lust and adultery. He talks about speech integrity. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. He talks about how to respond to hostility. Love your enemy. Turn the other cheek. He talks about our response to the poor and to the needy. He talks about our prayer life and how the way you pray really says a lot about your heart. He talks about our attitude towards money and possessions. He talks about radical generosity, which is also a heart issue. 
You know, the radically generous person is one who has a heart that is inclined towards God. And equally, a lack of generosity is also a sure sign of where your heart is. He talks about our attitude towards circumstances. Do not worry about what you'll eat, about what you'll drink, about what you'll wear. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And he talks about our attitude towards people who are wrong. Judge not. He says, judge not. So this sermon that Jesus gives is is really like an elaboration of what he says are the two greatest commandments. Love God and love your neighbor. This This is him saying, this is what those two commandments look like in practice. This is kingdom living. Now it has been known for people who are not Christians, who who wouldn't claim to have a relationship with Jesus, it has been known for people to try to live the Sermon on the Mount like a moral or an ethical code. But you can't. You, You just can't do it. Humanly speaking, nobody can do this. No, It's just not possible. If you think you can just live like this, you haven't read it. Or you haven't read it properly. Because it's too, the demands are too high in here for us. The demands is too much. It's totally unrealistic. In fact, it should probably be offensive to you. You know, what do you, what do you mean if I've looked at a woman lustfully? It's basically the same as committing adultery. That's ridiculous. How can that be the same thing? What are you talking about gouging your eyes out? What do you mean, love your enemy? Why would I love my enemy? That's absurd. Nobody can live like this. Now, they're, probably, they're standards that you probably would like everybody else to live up to. But you yourself know that you fall well short, because we all do. We all fall well short of this. The, the, the fact is, you don't live like this, like Jesus outlines here. You don't live like this to be better, or to gain favor with God, or even to try to be a Christian. This is the way I'm going to become a Christian, by living like this. No, you only live like this because you are a Christian. If you are a Christian and you have access to God's power, humanly speaking, this is not possible. But in the power of the Spirit, it is. In the power of the Spirit, you can live like this. But that's why this is, none of this is about saying, this series is not about saying, look, now, now go and live like this. You know, you're a bunch of failures. Go and sort your lives out. What are you doing? Make some changes in your life. As if we're capable of doing that in our own strength. No, it's not about that. It's about saying, seek him. Seek him. And that will be the message that comes through the whole series. It's about seeking him. Seek his presence. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Seek more of his presence. And then you will find change starts to happen in your life. You will find transformation starts to happen. Because this is about the gospel. And the gospel is good news. It's not good advice. This is not, the gospel is not a model of how we should live It is life. There is power in the gospel to transform, and it does. It transforms us. So this Sermon on the Mount, I think probably more than anything, underlines, shows the need for new birth. To be spiritually born again, to be able to live anything like this. I mentioned before about Jeremy Corbyn being somewhat undermined by um, some people in his party, publicly disagreeing with elements of his manifesto, with his, his blueprint, Well, when Christians' lives look nothing like this, I don't think we undermine Jesus himself, but we certainly undermine our witness to him. That the world is meant to see, the world is supposed to see, the world needs to see Christians who look like this. I I wonder what would happen if we all lived this way. 
Who knows? Maybe revival would come. Who knows? So the Sermon on the Mount is the context for these Beatitudes. And then let's do our final zoom. Final zoom in into street level with the Beatitudes themselves. And again, it's no accident where these Beatitudes come. It's no accident these Beatitudes come right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount because they describe what a Christian is. The person that we must be before we can do what Jesus says. These Beatitudes describe the character of a Christian and it is character before conduct. It's always character before conduct. Character has to come first, otherwise you're just pretending and you won't be able to keep it up. Character before conduct. And if you don't have this character that is described here in the Beatitudes, if you're not this person, then you won't be able to do the Sermon on the Mount. And if you try, it will crush you. It will crush you. Jesus is saying here, this this person that I'm describing here, this is the only person, the only kind of person who is truly blessed. Let me quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, this person described in the Beatitudes, this is the sort of man to be congratulated. This is the sort of man to be envied, for he alone is truly happy. Happiness is the great question confronting mankind. The whole world is longing for happiness, and it is tragic to observe the ways in which people are seeking it. I mean, this was written in the 1950s, but I think it's stunningly relevant for today. The vast majority, alas, are doing so in a way that is bound to produce misery, And that is where the utter deceitfulness of sin comes in. It is always offering happiness, and it always leads to unhappiness and to final misery and wretchedness. This and this alone is the type of person who is truly happy, who is really blessed. And notice that this blessing, this blessedness, is in the present tense. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. This is not blessings that are being reserved just for one day in the distant future. No, no, it's for now. Now, there are some future elements in, in this sermon, on, in, in the Beatitudes. It, it talks about um, you will be comforted, you will inherit the earth, you will be filled, you will be shown mercy, you will be called sons of God. But notice again, the first and the last. Verse 3 and verse 10 says there's is. Again, there are two bookends here. There's is the kingdom of God, present tense, the kingdom of heaven. And it's that paradoxical thing of the kingdom of God that, you know, the now and not yet. The kingdom has come, but it has still not, it is still yet to fully come. It's a now and not yet kingdom. We access it now, but there's something more. The rule of reign of God has come through Jesus Christ, through the death and resurrection of Jesus. The rule of reign of God, rule and reign of God has come, but it is still to be fully fulfilled. It's still to be fully consummated. It's still to be fully realized. There is more to come, praise God, for that. There is more to come, but it is also for now. This blessedness is to be experienced by Christians now. When you're born again, you are to start experiencing a quality of life that is completely different. Eternal life doesn't start in the future. Eternal life starts at the moment you're born again. It's a quality of life to be experienced now. The Bible says, if you're a Christian, you're a new creation. You have a new identity. And so this blessedness is to be experienced now. Are you experiencing it? Are you living in it? Are you living in the good of that blessing which he pours out on you now? Is a question. Let me just make three quick points, three brief points about these Beatitudes. First point, all Christians are to be like this. This is is a description 
of what every Christian should be. This is not just for some elite group, the famous ones or the ones who speak at conferences and that sort of thing. This is every Christian. So, for example, all Christians should be poor in spirit. And what does that mean? Without wanting to preempt Neil's talk too much for next week, but maybe a little preview. (laughs) Poor in spirit. Because actually a lot of people don't really understand what it means. It just means being spiritually bankrupt. It, it, it means that you know you, there's nothing in you to commend you to God. You've done nothing to merit his blessing. You've done nothing to earn his favor. You're completely dependent on his grace for your salvation. You have no way of paying your debts. There's the, and there's a realization that even your good deeds were done for the wrong reasons. But it's only Christians or only those who are becoming Christians who realize this. All Christians are to have this characteristic. All Christians are to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, it might be that you realize, but I, I don't always hunger and thirst for righteousness. You know, I, I, I realize I, I, I don't do this all the time. The key thing, though, is your desire. Where's the desire of your heart? If your heart says, I know I don't always get this, I know I always don't always live like this, but I want to. I really want to live like this. This is how I want my life to look like. Then that's a sure sign that Jesus is working in your life. We're on a journey of transformation. Okay, so first point, all Christians are to live like this. Second point, all Christians are meant to manifest all of these characteristics. You have to take, as I said before, you have to take the Beatitudes as a whole. It's a description of the character of a Christian. It's not a case of some are supposed to be poor in spirit, others are supposed to be meek, some are supposed to hunger and thirst, others are supposed to be peacemakers. No, every Christian is meant to be all of these things at the same time. Now that's why when we look in future weeks at individual Beatitudes, when we zoom in on those, we must always place it in the context of the whole thing. Because each one of these Beatitudes both builds on and relies on, depends on all of the others. They're all interlinked. So for example, if you're not poor in spirit, then you certainly won't mourn over your sin, and you won't be meek, and then you won't hunger and thirst for righteousness, because you think you are righteous already, if you're not poor in spirit in the first place. But equally, if you don't hunger and thirst for righteousness, then you're not going to be poor in spirit, and you're not going to be led to mourn over your sin. There's not going to be any purity of heart, there's not going to be any peacemakers without all the others being in place as well. You have to take the Beatitudes as a whole, because each one, in some sense, both demands and relies on all of the others. They're not isolated things. Now, it might be that some of them are more manifest in your life than others, but they are all to be present and all at the same time. This is the character of a Christian. Okay. Third point is that none of these things are natural tendencies. None of them are natural to us, and that's pretty obvious, I think, when you look at the list, this is not most people's path to happiness, being poor in spirit and mourning and hungering and thirsting and being persecuted. That's not your usual, your usual route. These are not natural to us. These are characteristics that are produced in us by grace alone and through the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And now, because these are not natural to us and these are not natural tendencies to anybody, this is what should distinguish Christians from the world the way Christians live from the world. And that's not to be divisive. That is simply a recognition that Christians and those who are not Christians live, belong to two entirely different realms. We belong to two entirely different kingdoms. Let me quote Lloyd-Jones again, because he says it well. The glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, 
she invariably attracts it. It is then that the world is made to listen to her message, though it may hate it at first. It should not be our ambition to be as much like everybody else as we can, though we happen to be Christian, but rather to be as different from everybody who is not a Christian as we possibly can be. Our ambition should be to be like Christ. The more like him, the better. And the more like him we become, the more we shall be unlike everybody who is not a Christian. The world believes in self-confidence and self-expression and the mastery of life. The Christian believes in being poor in spirit. What the world admires is the antithesis of what you find here in the Beatitudes. Now, please don't take offense at that if you're not a Christian. Because this is not a value judgment. This is not about saying Christians are better people or anything even remotely like that. If anything, it's to apologize. If you've come across Christians in your life who are no different from anything else, like chameleons just blending in to everybody else, fitting in for whom Jesus is just a bolt on, because that is no witness to Jesus Christ. Because if this is true, if Christianity is true, and Jesus does have power, then Christians should be transformed people. And therefore, they should be different. Not in a superior kind of way, but different. Standing out from the rest of the world. That's the way it should be, surely, if we're following this teaching. And so... So I just want to finish really by saying this, and particularly to to, to anyone who's not a Christian, that having lived both ways myself, having, having spent the first 17 years of my life as somebody who's not a Christian, and the last 21, 22 years as a Christian, having lived both in the kingdom of the world and in the kingdom of God, I just would like to say that this is better. This is the better life by far. Not easier, Certainly not easier, but it is better. It's blessed. It is a blessed life. I am, I am mightily blessed, but I can't produce this in myself. That's why it can never be about superiority. I can't produce any of this in myself. Very often I'm painfully aware of where I am lacking, of where I'm not living like this. But I know that my heart says I want to. This is how I want to live. This is what I want my life to look like. Help me, Jesus. Help me, Jesus, to be more like you, because I can't make myself live this way. I'm utterly dependent on what Jesus has won for me in his death and resurrection. And he offers the same to you. He offers the same to the whole world. And that's life. He offers new life, a different, a different quality of life. And he offers a way back to God, which is what we were all created for. It's what we were all designed for, to be in relationship, in spiritual connection with God. I can't make myself poor in spirit. Naturally speaking, I'm full of arrogance and pride, and many of you might say amen to that. But what you find is in the presence of Jesus, when you, when you invite him into your life, and particularly when you encounter the cross, pride falls away. There's no room for pride. There is nowhere to hide, and you become poor in spirit just by virtue of being in his presence. You see yourself as you really are. You see him as he really is in the presence of Jesus and at the cross. And then every time pride rises up again, I have to go back to him. I have to get back into his presence because I can't produce any of this in myself. It's not me It's not because there's anything good or virtuous about me. It's all about him. It's all about his righteousness, his goodness, 
working in me. You know, there are promises in here about being comforted and about being filled and seeing God. But I can only be comforted because Jesus mourned. I can only be filled because he emptied himself. I can only be shown mercy because he suffered the most gross injustice. And I can only get to see God because he willingly lost sight of God in his darkest hour. It's all about him. This is the life to which we are called. So read it. Read this sermon again and again and again. This is the life to which we are called, but it is only possible because of him. Humanly speaking, it's not possible to live this way. In the power of the Spirit, it is. In the power of the Spirit, we can. And in the weeks to come, we will be zooming right in to look at individual houses. But we must remember that each house is part of a street, a town, which is part of a nation, which is part of a planet. Each of these beatitudes that we look at is to be treated in the context of the whole set, in the context of the whole sermon, and of Jesus' whole ministry of word and spirit, word and power, and in the eternal covenantal context of God's mission to rescue and restore and redeem his world and his people for eternity. So let us draw near to him. Let us draw near to him. And as we dig into these beatitudes, may we be truly blessed as we draw near to him. Amen.